on? Okay. Good morning. It's a privilege to be up here again. Uh, I didn't think there was going to be a part two to this for me. But as the old saying goes, I guess uh, God has different plans, and I guess it's over. <laughs> that takes the pressure off. I'm already done. It's God's responsibility, not me anyways. Um, no, nah, but it's, uh, it's a privilege, really, to be up here. Let me just say right from the start that I appreciate the prayers from each and every one of you guys, uh, because anybody knows me for five minutes, this isn't usually my thing to come up before everybody. I like playing Wiz Waldo with the geeky glasses and a sweater hidden out there somewhere and then encouraging uh, somebody else. But I guess, uh, you know, every now and then, God gets us off the bench to, uh, you know, play the position that he wants us to play. So today's the day that he has me up here. So I'm uh, really grateful. Um, before I begin, I, uh, my mother-in-law, Rose, I, I want to say this before I even get started, that uh, her dad, uh, Mr. Ferrara, George Ferrara, is going through some health issues at the moment, and the family has a lot of uh, difficult choices to make at this point. So I just pray that you would keep them in your hearts and your prayers for that uh, sustaining grace for the family as they uh, decide what choices, as they communicate with one another and the best path forward for their parents. You know, it's a season of life that's always uh, a challenge and quite different, and um, I just pray that you would uh, ask God to grant them wisdom and uh, just his presence with them in this time of need. Um, it's our first invitation Sunday that we've had in quite a while, quite a number of years, and I was uh, quite a huge endeavor for myself. I didn't think I'd be doing something like this, but um, just, uh, just out of curiosity, if you're here for the first time, if you would just slip your hand up and slip it back down so I can just get a gauge of, um, I know there are people listening online as well. It seems to be, at least in the chapel, it's going to be more inside baseball. So, but I know I've, last time I spoke, I've heard from a lot of people who have listened online, and uh, they uh, were really blessed by it, uh, the message that I did, which I found quite amazing. So, um, before I begin, let me uh, just open with a word of prayer before I even get started. Um, Heavenly Father, uh, I just thank you for the privilege um, to be used by you today, Lord, and I am under no illusion, Lord, that I have no special skills or qualifications or any title, uh, ecclesiastical hierarchy, any kind of title, but uh, Lord, sometimes as your word says, you use the little things in this world or even the broken things in this world to show your wisdom, Lord, so um, Father, uh, just Give me the words to speak as though this place was packed out with people who's never heard of you before because there's no telling where your message that you'll be speaking through me is going to go. So, Lord, just help me to preach as though this place was packed with people who's never heard the name of Jesus before. So, Lord, I thank you, and I thank you for the work that you're already going to do and the work that you've already done in your sovereignty and your mercy and love. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, before I begin, this message is going to be geared towards uh, unbelievers. Uh, I know there's quite a few people that has listened online from work, from my work, and they've got a lot of pretty good feedback. Um, so the structure and the way I'm going to speak, you won't see too many Bible verses up on the screen. There won't even be a text verse per se, 
But that's not to say that you're not going to hear the principles of God's word all over the place. It's going to be littered. It's just not going to be, for instance, in a case of John 3.16 and quote word for word what it says in the Bible. But you're going to hear the principle lived out in daily life. So that way we could take the propositions that we understand in our mind. Shouldn't have touched that. My wife says, don't touch your ear like that because I messes with the mics. <laughs> and, and, and connecting it with an everyday experience. And what happens in the process, it takes the words that come from the Bible. And it's like you could put your hands around it and see how it works. It's like, for instance, I don't want to just come up and proclaim the gospel propositionally but I want people to feel it. I want them to be invested in it and as well. I'm not talking about emotionalism. Some people jump to an extreme. But when you're emotional towards the truth, just like when somebody gets married, you don't check a checkbox and say, well, we seem like we're compatible for one another, so we might as well hook up. You know, it doesn't work that way. You're emotionally engaged because of the truth of what you know. So my goal today is take the gospel, perhaps, that we've heard a million times, it's kind of like being in New York. You pass by the certain buildings all the time. You don't even pay attention. It's almost like, you know, it's abstract. But I want us to be fully engaged in what our Lord has truly done for us. And I want to start from square one, from the very ground level, how we even get there in the first place. Um, let me just say right off the bat, I appreciate, you know, Paul did a great gospel message last week, and I really mean that. And the reason why I mean that, because he's very gifted in clarity, and clarity is quite needed in our world today, because the world is so confusing. It's such a big cloud of confusion. We don't know what a family is anymore. We don't know when life begins, and we're so sophisticated in our modern age, but yet we're in an even worse position that we've ever been before. That shows that knowledge in and of itself isn't a solution to get us out of this conundrum. Um, so as I listen to the simplicity of it, it's quite powerful. He didn't qualify and say why he believed the Bible was God's word. He says, God said it. This is the gospel. Christ died for you. You're a sinner. And sometimes it's so confusion and so dark, you need that voice there that just says, this is the direction you need to go. And God has gifted Paul with a gift of clarity, being straight and to the point. But as people, as you and I know, we're all different. We, are, we have intellect. Some people are cerebrally driven, and some people are emotionally driven. God has made us complex. It says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. We're not just these big brains like you see back in a Looney Tunes covered with liquid in a glass case that if I punch enough Bible verses, you're going to get it and come to Christ. It doesn't really work that way. For some people, it does. But for a lot of people, at least the people that I rub elbows with, it really doesn't work that way. We're more visually driven in our world today, aren't we? We have the media. Everybody's on their phones. For the first time in centuries, we're speaking the same common language through the eye socket, through the eye, through the eye gate, if you will. We watch a video, and it's like we're all speaking the same language again. It's almost like the Tower of Babel all over again. So what I'm going to do... Uh, from the beginning, as so I'm gonna set up, I'm gonna begin to quote some principles, but then explain through the eye gate what that looks like. Because most people, they listen to the words that come, but oftentimes they need to see it. I mean, my favorite version of the Bible, if I could put it up, is the picture Bible, because I see pictures all the time. It's not the NLT, it's probably the picture Bible. You know, you open up to the guy with the muscles, that's Samson. You know, that's, that's the way my, 
brain works. But um, I'm gonna start where, where when I rub elbows with people at work, I'm a delivery guy, and um, I like to get a gist for the pulse of where people are thinking and where people are at. And there's two things that I see they have in common. Number one, all the suffering and struggles they go on in the world. Questions like, if God is so good, I just ran into recently, why did my nephew, you know, who's like six or nine years old, have to come down with leukemia? It's a tough one, you know. Um, I remember reading a book by Eli Weissel, where he was a Nobel Prize winner, and uh, he was in the concentration camps, and he uh, spoke his recordings how his mother and father were gassed in the, in the showers, and they were sent to the crematory. Never saw them again after that. Uh, the why questions, why would God allow this? Why would God allow earthquakes? Why, why, why? And when I was speaking, uh, I had a friend of mine actually that I work with and uh, he didn't want anything to do with God. Uh, he says, you know what, Dan? He says, when I was little, maybe about nine years old, my dad came out with a terminal disease. So I got on my knees, this is a little like nine-year-old kid at the time and says, God, would you just heal my dad? I don't know if you're there, but would you heal him? And uh, he said, God never answered that prayer, and his dad died, and he was angry. But if that wasn't enough, I think like four years later, same thing happened to his mom. His mom came down with some terminal ailment. I believe it was cancer. And a single parent at the time looked up to her, tried to help her as much as he can as a young man. He prayed. He says, God, you didn't hear me the first time, but I pray that you would hear me this coming time. Please heal my mom. And uh, she passed away. So from that point we had a good relationship, but you could see there was disdain and hatred that had anything to do with God. So when you hear these questions, it's very personal and very real, but I want to bring something right from the outset. Um, when you hear these questions, they're not a questions of God's existence, if you will. They're questions about God's character. Like Eli Weissel, when he was in the uh, concentration camp, he believed in God but he didn't think God was just. He didn't think God was a fair, just God. So he hated God. He hated God with a passion. So how do we get out of this conundrum? I mean, we live in a society today, you have so polarized, it's completely ridiculous. You got pro-gun, anti-gun, you know, uh, you have um, woman's choice, you have pro-life, you have many, you have Republican, you have... Uh, Democrat, liberal, conservative, LGBTQ, you have traditional marriage, and it seems like we're coming across at the edge, and there's no point of reference uh, to work through these issues. As a matter of fact, uh, G.K. Chesterton uh, said this, and I, I thought it was pretty uh, interesting. He says, he used this as an example of what's going on in a social sciences today. He says, in a medical science, you know, you have doctors trying to take care of somebody, for instance. They might disagree on how to, what the cure is, but they can agree on what a healthy body looks like. But he says in our society, it's completely different. It's flip-flop because he says we can't even agree on what a good society is today. We can't agree because we're in so many different places. So where does the gospel fit in into all this? Is it the one message among many others? In Islam, in Buddhism, there's many different options. So when I speak this way, there's a, a place for clarity which is vital.
but there's also there's a plethora of different ideas and views. I tend to take more of the subtler route around and try to build my case little by little. Not that by my works of persuasion can ever bring somebody to receive Jesus Christ. But at the same time, God has gifted us, gifted and equipped us in a certain way to pour our whole heart into this. That we don't that we preach his word, but we come to an understanding of where the pain and pulse of the people's at. So as we preach the message of his love, we do it in a very loving and sensitive way at the same time. Um, I guess the way I would begin is, I think a couple of years ago, I stepped down for the prison ministry, but uh, I remember when I first started, and um, I, you, you have the same group of guys pretty often. And after I built that rapport with them, I asked them one question. I said, guys, uh, you don't have to answer this or anything, but I'm just curious. How many of you guys uh, have dads or, you know, moms or whatnot? And there was quite a few guys there. And I'd say 80% of them didn't have dads. 80%, that's a lot. And we see that more and more in our society today. It's kind of fatherless in a sense. And... I think that's a, a microcosm of what's going on in our world today because we become a society that learned to um, live without a heavenly father, like we're orphaned, so to speak. We're trying to figure out stuff on our own. We're trying to come up with our own choices because there's nobody there to guide or lead us. So I think relationships is a key to how we get to this gospel in the first place. Um, I remember a story that I've read quite a long time ago, and that's going to lead to the first point the first leg of this walk, if you would say, because I want you engaged in your imagination as well. Uh, I, I wanna walk with you. If, if you're already a uh, Christian, I wanna see why we believe these things and how we can explain these things for those who may be looking for answers and how to present them. Back in the, this is a true story, back in the 80s in New York City, there was this uh, 12-year-old girl, she was a, uh, um, abandoned as a little girl, and she used to hop from foster home to foster home. No parents, no nothing. She never had family, didn't know anyone. Well, she came, I think she was 12 years, she was 12 years old. She finally went to this orphanage. You have counselors, it's like a Catholic facility. You see nuns, you have priests trying to give the kids a place to stay. Back in the streets in New York City at the time, it was drug infested. Uh, which still is today, a lot of prostitution, and that's the environment this girl grew up with. And um, one of the counselors took special notice of her because she came in with a paint can, which is very interesting because she's seen a lot of young kids come, even the toughest of kids, some kind of security, whether it's like a, a teddy bear or whatnot, or some object that, you know, that had give it that sense of security. And uh, what she noticed was wherever she went, she never was within, you know, uh, was never further than arm's length with that paint can. She hopped in the shower, that it was just like right outside of it, arm's length. It's like she guarded it with her life. Uh, she went to the cafeteria to get some food. It was right next to her. And this uh, counselor began to observe, and there were times where she would just hold this paint can with everything that she has, and she would rock back and forth, back and forth with it. So uh, one of the counselors figured introduce herself, you know, like an accidental type of meeting. And she sat down with her and she says, uh, after they started talking, build a little bit of report, she says, Kathy, what do you have inside the paint can? That's a nice paint can. And Kathy says, I don't want to talk about it, it's my paint can. 
He says, okay, I'm not, I'm not gonna pry. And um, there was a, you know, the same thing, I think it was like within days, you know, they had to sit and do lessons and classes while they were staying there. And uh, she came up with another accidental type of meeting with her again at the cafeteria. So they sat, they had a meal, and, um, and, and then she did, took a deep breath, the counselor, and said, okay, she's gonna give another go at it. And she says, uh, Kathy, she says, um, can you tell me what's in a paint can? What's up with the paint can? She grabs a paint can, wraps both arms around it, so it's like a child, and she rocks back and forth, and she begins shaking. She says, it's my mother. She says, your mother, what are you talking about? She says, when I was, when I was two days old, I was thrown away in a dumpster, right? This is a true story, by the way. This really happened. The counselors did the background afterwards because sometimes kids make up stories. They said it actually, actually happened. They saw the police report the day it supposedly happened, and sure enough, yeah, she was, there was a little girl they found in a dumpster. And she says for most of her life, she hated her mother because she learned, you know, obviously as she got older what happened. She didn't want anything to do with her mother. And, um, but, you know, one of her friends convinced her, said, maybe you should try to find your mom, or there was somebody there for whatever reason knew how to find her mother. So even though she hated her, she still wanted to, find, you know, talk to her and see what happened. You found her, she ended up in a hospital to make a long story short, right? And uh, she met her mother. Her mother was dying at that point. That was back in the 80s. She had AIDS. That was a death sentence back then. And uh, she was on the last leg of her life. It was full-blown. And she sat and she spoke with her mom and her mom began to cry when she learned who she was. And she began to apologize to her because she was you know, on heroin, a lot of drugs, things like that. She was just wasn't in her right mind. And, um, and as they began to talk, Kathy began to leave and then um, the mom said these last words to her. She says, Kathy, and she turns around and she says, I love you. And then she said it again and repeated it. She says, Kathy, I love you. And it began to sit really deep. So now we're back in the cafeteria. She's telling the counselor this. And she holds the can, the can. She's rocking back and forth. She's in tears. She says, sister. She was a nun. She says, sister, my mom said she loved me. And she repeated it again. My mom said she loved me. And part of the clues to life, and I would say this would be the first leg we're not in an orphaned world. We're not all alone. We don't have to try to figure out stuff on our own. We don't have the answers to anything, but what we can know, we're not orphaned, and there's a heavenly Father who loves us very much. And when you hear the words, I love you, from the one who's given you life, it means everything, and it changes the world for you. It begins to give you identity and life again. See, the counselor could have said, look, I love you, Kathy, I'm here for you, and that would have been quite meaningful, but it's different when you hear from the individual who's actually birthed you and given you life, the words, I love you. The word of God reminds me is, you know, even though your mother and father would forsake you, I will never forsake you. Don't compare me to, to that father who never was there for you. I'm completely different. So that's the first leg. That's the first step towards this gospel. We were made for a loving relationship with God. That's our core. That's where we can find that common ground again. Now, some people may be listening online um, is not going to disagree with a lot of things that I'll use from the book of Genesis and say, I don't believe that's literal, Dan. I'd be like, okay, I can respect that, but can you at least listen to me and agree with the principles first and go from there and then we'll build. Um, the Bible in Genesis says we're made for a loving relationship with him. 
but then something went terribly wrong, didn't it? It was something that Christians call uh, the fall. There's a man named Paul in the New Testament, and he said this, and I think every human being can compare with this. He says, man, there's things that I do in life, and I don't want to do them, but I keep finding myself doing those things. And number two, he's, and then he continues to say, the things I don't want to do, those are the things I keep doing. I think that's the product of every human condition. And Jesus Christ nails it to pinpoint accuracy, the fundamental problem with every human being on the face of the earth. It's not a matter of education, knowledge, better environment. There was a perfect environment in the garden, but we chose to go independent. We chose to redefine everything, what's right and wrong for ourselves because we wanted to be like him. That's the principle. We see those seeds in every one of us. Uh, I remember uh, in, I think it was Billy Graham's book I read years ago, uh, Just As I Am, and he talks about meeting with the, uh, uh, the chancellor of Germany at the time, Conrad Eidenauer, I believe. He was imprisoned by the Nazis just after World War II, and he was forced to pick up all the pieces back in Germany. And uh, Dr. Graham, in the beginning part of his ministry, was asked to visit him because he needed some spiritual guidance. So he was sitting back, and, and the chancellor was looking out the window, looking at all the rubble and the smoldering smoke, wondering, how am I going to put this back together again? And many of you have probably heard, it's a pretty common story. Um, with his back to Billy Graham looking out the window, he says, Dr. Graham, do you really believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Do you really believe this? And Billy Graham says he was kind of taken off God because he's not used to ask pointed questions like that. There's usually a more let's work into the conversation. But he was very direct. But Billy Graham said, he says, he got his composure back and he says, uh, Mr. Chancellor, sir, if I didn't believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, I wouldn't even have a gospel to preach. Yes, I do. And then he looks back out the window and he sees all the mayhem and uh, you know, all the, and this was the sophisticated people, the most educated people on the face of the earth at that time in that era. They loved classical music. They loved the arts. They were quite sophisticated. These weren't Neanderth Neanderthal barbarian brutes who didn't know any better. They were quite sophisticated, kind of like we are today in this nation. And then he looked and he thought about all that and he says, you know, if it, if it's, if the, re he says, if it wasn't for the resurrection of Jesus Christ, he says, I see no other hope for mankind. There isn't. Because he sees the nature of man. He saw that the problem was what, with man wasn't that where, it's not a moral problem. It's not the fact that we don't do right things all the time. He says it goes deeper than that as he looks at his people and what they went through. He says it's a matter of condition. It's a matter of nature. The whole nature is wrong, so to speak. Uh, you know, if there's ever anybody, you know, here or listening online saying, well, I don't think I'm that bad. I've never killed anybody. I'm a pretty good person or I'm a philanthropist, you know. I help out people in need, you know. I don't see myself as what the Bible calls a sinner. The Bible, what sin is, sin is that force that it seems like you can't shake out of, that you want to do the right thing, but you always can't. It doesn't mean you're completely bad. You do a lot of good things. But there's something fundamentally to your core that you can't break out of. It's like you're in a prison. 
You wish you could. Some people call it addiction. Some people call it different names to it. But fundamentally, according to the Bible, that power source that has control over you and you can't break free, no matter how hard you try, that's called sin. There's a word for that. The Bible uses that. The reason why I want to clarify that, because people think, well, I've never killed anybody. Da, 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 da. Uh, I remember uh, when I was uh, talking to a guy at work and he asked me what I did. I said, like, oh, I do prison ministry now and then. He says, oh, that's good. Those people need it. Those people are sinners. And he says, oh, yeah, oh, that's interesting. He said, how do you feel about you? He says, well, I'm not that bad. He says, uh, you know, I got a good governor. You know, I can kind of hold, you know, hold his rein up his own thing. Some people, you know, hide it better than others, blah, blah, blah. He's not as bad as others. Fundamentally is what he was saying. And I says, that's interesting. And I remember using this example here. I used it on him. I was like, huh. I says, tell me this. I says, if there was a big screen behind you and all your thoughts was put up on that screen, how would you feel? Yeah, exactly, exactly. And I'm the speaker. Ouch, you would never see me here again. You would think left behind. You'd find a pile of clothes all over the floor because I'd run out. Um, and, you know, he thought, and I said, you see the point? The seeds of that wickedness, the seeds of that nature, the seeds of what the Bible calls sin is in each and every one of us, and we're all in the same boat, aren't we? I know I am. I know I still battle every single day. I remember Apostle Paul is like, whew, thank God he struggles because, you know, I can identify when I know that a great man of God struggles as well, and that gives me hope about the grace of God. So what's the solution? Number one, the first leg of the walk is, as we walk through this, whatever, you know, garden park type of thing, we're loved by the one who gave us life. Number two, there's something wrong inherently with each and every one of us, a power source that we can't break free from. It's almost undeniable. You can't deny it without something wrong being with you. Malcolm Muggeridge used to quote this way. He says, the depravity of man, sin, is the most empirically verifiable fact in other words, plain English, it's obvious. You can see it. You open a paper. You look at the news. We know ourselves, who we are to our core. We use terms like, you know, I, I got skeletons in my closet. Nobody's perfect. This is my bed. I got to lie in it. Those are expressions of that depravity that's each and every one of us. We can't shake it, so we sound foolish to deny it exists. He says it's the most empirically verifiable fact, but yet it's the most intellectually resisted. You go in our schools today, in our university. Sin are for those Neanderthals to keep the masses in line, you know, things such as that. Um, so we see number two leg of this race that we're depraved. We need help, so to speak. We can't shake this. We need what we call a savior, a savior, someone who's stronger than we are in that power that restricts us and gets us out of that prison, someone who's able to take our cause upon himself. Let me see. Thank God I don't have the phone. That phone was too slow last time. That drove me nuts. Let me see. Let me use this illustration of what it means to need someone greater than us, a savior. Uh, in his book, uh, I don't know if it was the same book, but it, again, it was the same author. He talked about Jim Baker. I mean, I know most people uh, probably know who Jim Baker was. That was the beginning of the downfall, you know, with uh, Jimmy Swaggart, televangelism. Um, he was involved in you know, laundering money, things such as that, uh, you know, uh, celestial relationships. Um, 
I forgot what the name of the organization was, but I guess it's not that important. Anyhow, the long short of it is that he got caught. It was publicly known all over the papers. Uh, he was the most probably hated person in the United States at that time. And I remember, I was much smaller, but I still remember that he was even hated by a lot by the church. I think most of the tongue lashing came from the church, actually, than from the unbelievers. And uh, now, he did time, I think he got five years or something along those lines. His reputation completely shattered, all alone, rejected. And uh, I forget what prison, but he was mopping the floor. He was sweaty, he had mop water all over him, he was a mess. And then all of a sudden, one of the CEOs came up to him. He says, Baker. He says, yeah. He says, you got a visitor. He says, I don't want to see nobody right now. He was despondent. He was frustrated. He didn't even want to live life anymore. He says, Baker, you're going to want to see this one. He says, I told you I don't want to see anybody. He says, come on, I'll walk with you. He says, I'll go, but I'm not changing for nobody. I'll go just like this. Throws his mop on the floor. He says, let's go. So he goes into the visiting room. And uh, the door closes behind him. The CEO left. And all of a sudden, the person got up to, to see him. And he turns around. And it was, uh, you would probably guess it, Billy Graham. Think about the, the dilemma here. You got one side, the most hated individual in the, as far as Christian ministry, stained, destroyed. And the very opposite side, you got one with a reputation, at least as far as I know at that time, Minister purity in ministry. And then Billy Graham walks a little closer to him. He says, Jimmy, and he opens up his arms like this. I love you. And uh, Jim, it says, true story, Jim, uh, uh, Jim Baker walks up to him, puts his head on his chest because he's kind of tall. Uh, and he said he began crying like a baby. He began crying like a baby. Here you have this individual at the height of Christian ministry in purity, and here's this guy in his own mop outfit, stinking, and Billy Graham didn't even care about his own reputation, even though the rest of the church hated the guy. He said, that doesn't matter to me. He says, I love you, Jimmy, and I'm here for you. Is there anything I could do for you? There was somebody greater than himself, in a sense, that even though he was in a worse area of his life, there was somebody willing to meet him right where he was at and express his love, so to speak. And I thought that was deep and moving because it's this type of love when we're at our worst, I think is really what changes people. I think that's what the gospel is all about. Number one, that there is a God out there who loves us very much. And we don't have to guess if he's there or even guess his character, his nature, or make up what he's like, subjectivity and, and uh, subjection, because we see it on the cross behind us, don't we? It says, uh, I remember Thomas Aquinas saying this. He's uh, some kind of monk or apologist or something, and exactly what happened. And he says, I think, I don't know, if maybe even Paul might have quoted it before. I heard somebody here quote it, and I thought it was so incredible because it's very true. He says, uh, when we say we love somebody and that person doesn't love us back in return, we hurt pretty bad because we lost somebody who's important. We lost their love. And then he brings this out. He says, when God says, you know, I love you very much, and for whatever reason, you know, our depravity, we don't love him back. It says that God hurts too. It's not because God loses anything. He's perfect. But it's because we become less of what we were intended to be. 
we become less. And we see that in ourselves. We see that in our country. We have no idea what it means to be a human being anymore. And what we see is Jesus Christ coming from his world, so to speak. He says he came from his world into our world. So this is why I kind of present like this, especially with somebody who's never heard Christ. I want to enter into their world like he came into my world at one time. He came into our world to show us what? To show us, number one, this isn't all there is. I mean, the Bible says again and again, the world is passing away. This pulpit isn't going to last. The clothes you're wearing, they're going to wear out one day. The floors you're sitting on, they're going to, unless you keep up with it, it's just going to go back to the ground. The streets that you ride on, no matter what you name, it will not last. This world is passing away. It truly is. It doesn't take a, a, a brain surgeon to understand this. Our relationships with another, the most precious things in this world, you know, as we did a lot of memorials here, they don't always last, do they? I think C.S. Lewis, he says, to love somebody in this world is one day to have your heart broken. Because one way or another, even that relationship to some degree, as we know it here, will not last. Because nothing in this world lasts. C.S. Lewis says, these are almost like the shadow lands. It's so temporary. But Jesus Christ came into this world to show us that there is another one. And that one is where everything exists, where rust or moth will never destroy. It's permanent. And that's what we were made for. So I don't know why, as I was telling you from the beginning, why uh, that little boy with leukemia had to die. But I'm thinking that little boy, six years old with leukemia, is sitting in a lap in a new world with Jesus Christ. And that's a hope that he gives each and every one of us. Number one, we know that the one who gave us life loves us so much. Number two, we can't break from this stranglehold, no matter if we have the best of intentions. Can't do it. It's just too strong for us. And number three, Jesus came to die on the cross. There's always a cost for forgiveness. I think I said something like this last time I spoke. There's always a cost. Why is there a cross, Dan? What's the big deal about a cross? Why can't he forgive? He calls us to forgive. He can't practice what he preaches. And I says, because you don't know what you're asking. There's always a cost. I says, we exercise these things all the time. And I'll use myself, so to speak. The beauty of, for you guys is you get to sit there and look pretty just like you're doing right now. I'll put myself out there. Um, I've said jokes. You might not think it's a big deal, but it's a big deal to me. Maybe somebody listened online. I remember, um, like, for instance, I've said things about certain groups or jokes just happenstance, you know, like it wasn't a big deal, that weren't very appropriate and has hurt some people not realizing it. Whatever, LGBTQ, you know, saying certain jokes. Now, I'm not saying I agree with anything, but we, God has called us to accept each and every person made in his image without agreeing with every person all the time. I've said stuff like that. And what I do know is that Jesus Christ, he is present here, but if he's present here in the same sense that we are, Nobody would be cracking those jokes, would they? Because that person is incredibly valuable to him. He gave everything for him. What's the cost? What did he pay? He paid with himself. He paid with eternity. He gave all of, whether it's a, a group you disagree with, it doesn't matter. He gave his all for them. So who am I to crack a joke? Am I quote unquote saved because I know a little bit of the Bible or whatever? No, I deserve nothing from God. 
who has by his incredible grace and favor given me something like Jim Baker that I didn't deserve. He met me where I was at, and when I was at my worst, he loved me and he forgave me. So why am I up here today? I'm not up here today because I enjoy public speaking. I tell you the truth, it's not my thing. But God, I guess, calls the shots, I don't know. But um, I do it because I love him and I'm so grateful for what he's done for me. Cost, what determines a cost? What determines what a person's worth? What determines what anything's worth? Gold, what, what determines what gold is worth? Let's just think real quick economically. What someone is willing to pay for it. You can get something cheesy, something like baseball cards, you know, Michael Jordan rookie card. Those things go for an insane amount of money. Really, it's just a piece of cardboard, really. But if what someone is willing to pay for that card is what determines what gives something value. We have the greatest value. You may be sitting here and not know anything about this, don't know who you are, where you came from. One thing I could tell you that in time and history, Jesus Christ came to meet us right where we're at and to offer us forgiveness. And he demonstrated our worth by paying the cost. And the cost was his very self through the Son of Jesus Christ. It can be tested in time. It's not philosophical by any means. I mean, these things can be tested. There's a man named Paul in the Bible. He says, if there really was no resurrection, remember Conrad Eidenhower, Eidenhower, the Chancellor of Germany? He said, if there is no resurrection of Jesus Christ, if it wasn't for that, I see no other hope. He says, that has to be it. It can be tested. It happened really. If you have questions, ask your questions. Look for them. Don't stop. Don't conclude, oh, they're not there. That's just, no. It means you really don't want to know. It can be tested. If it claims to be true, it should be tested. What determines something's worth it is what somebody is willing to pay. And to make a long story short, if I was to apologize... Uh, to someone from that disposition, it would be like Jesus Christ gave the whole, gave His whole self for you, right where you're at. So that way you can receive forgiveness. Let's just say I apologized from you know for whatever I did wrong, you know for anybody, any. I don't want to pick on any particular, but let's just say my apology. Here's why I just want to make it concrete and simple. No Christian words. No, it's nothing wrong with it. But if somebody's listening. I don't like to use as much Christian jargon. I want them to get what I'm saying. If I say something, they can't understand it and they reject that. That really bothers me. But if I speak in such a clear way that they understand what I'm saying and they say no to it, I'm kind of okay with it. At least they're understanding what they're saying no to. Let's just say I, uh, I apologize to someone, but I didn't really mean it, so to speak. And that person is willing to forgive me. Um... I really haven't received that forgiveness. Why? Because I'm continuing to do the same things that I did before, right? Only until I'm willing to turn, because of receive that forgiveness, is to turn from the things I used to do and then ask for forgiveness. That's where it connects. Some people think if I just ask for forgiveness and say the magic words, I'm forgiven and I could do, live any kind of lifestyle I want and do exactly the same thing. And this is going to be a little hard for some of us. I think this is one of the most difficult barriers to keep a person from coming to Christ. It isn't the existence of God or uh, evidence for the resurrection. Um, for example, uh, I remember you know, sharing with a buddy of mine. He used to be an MMA fighter, does stuff like that. Very nice guy. 
And, you know, he began to be inquisitive, asked what I believed. He believed in many different things. And I gave him a book on evidences for the resurrection, the person, all that stuff. In the end, he couldn't believe it. And the reason why is because the cost is that final barrier for a lot of people. It was way too high. The cost was too high for him. Most people don't come to the Lord because they're not willing to pay the cost. Jesus said this in his own words. He says, if you're not willing to love me more than your own mother or father, husband, wife, your own kids, your own job, your own reputation, the way people look up to you, fame, everything, if you don't love me more than that, you can't follow me. And that's hard. Most people are like, why are you saying that part? Because I don't want to be like those phony salesmen that just tell you the good things about and just don't tell you the real deal, as my brother Mike Brown would say. Um, it's hard. It's hard. That's when Jesus says that the path is narrow, not because people can't for whatever reason, but people aren't willing to. The cost, the barrier is too high. That part I cannot help you with. I can walk with you throughout this trek through the garden. I can go through the different legs. I could tell you how much he loves you so much. And, and not just intellectually, but even in your heart. Show how this is true. I can explain to you how we're broken on the inside. And we need somebody greater than us to get us out of this conundrum we're in. And that he is willing because he went to the cross for us. He paid the cost. He showed the value in each and every one of us so we can be forgiven. And just like in the beginning, we can be connected with him again. It's on a rescue mission. It's exactly what it is on a rescue mission. But one thing he will not do is he will force you. That he can't. Why? The word of God says that uh, God is love. God is love. What does that mean? If you look at love fundamentally, love can never be forced. Those two words never go together. No such thing as love and force going together. We know what that is, and it's horrible. It's violent. Some people ask the question, why doesn't God just make everybody do the good things? Why did God make a, a garden in there? In the front? It, it makes no sense. Because if he didn't do that, we would have been a bunch of robots. He didn't want robots. He's a relational God in and of himself through Jesus Christ, through the Father, through the Holy Spirit. He didn't need people. He was perfectly content in who he is. He was perfect, perfect, filled with joy, filled with communion within himself. He wasn't lonely. He didn't need us, but he's such an expression of love. He wanted to make a creature who can enjoy the joy that he has. Remember a passage in the Bible that says, Jesus, oh, God is talking. Uh, it's in Jeremiah, I forget what it is, but he says, why, I'm paraphrasing, but he said, why do you keep drinking water out of containers with holes in it? Why? We all want to be happy, don't we? I, don't, I have never met one human being who doesn't want to be happy, and the Bible doesn't have a beef with anybody who wants to be happy. It's built in. The problem he has is when we drink out of the wrong containers. As soon as we drink, the water's going all over the ground. I believe it's in Isaiah, he talks about, you know what it's kind of like, somebody trying to be happy? It's kind of like somebody's dying of thirst in the desert and he falls asleep and he kind of imagines himself, he's in an oasis and he's drinking and he's swimming around. But when he wakes up from the dream, he's in even worse condition. How many of us have done that? We're trying to look for happiness and everybody wants it, but not many find it because we end up waking up drinking out of the wrong things. 
In the Bible, he says, I am the living water. I am the living water. He says, whosoever is willing, he says, let him come to me. You know what's cool about that word? There's no restrictions. Anybody can come to him. Whosoever. It's a matter of a choice now. Love is a choice. Anymore, I can't force my, you know, if, if I need a friend, you know, pay somebody to be my, it doesn't work that way. They have to do it on their own. Um, he says, come to me, come to me. I'm the living water. I'm the only one that can satisfy. And he can't force you. When Jesus says, not many people can follow me unless they love me first, there's a great cost. But what can help you with that? We all had to get through that barrier. And there is hope, even though I can't help you per se, that's a decision you have to make on your own. Um, perhaps this analogy will be more persuasive. Um, I said this analogy in a prison before. Uh, it's a true story as far as I understand it. I haven't used it in quite a while, so I hope I don't mess it up. But it talks about in Korea, um, there was this Korean woman who was full-term pregnant. And she was on her way into a different village, a town, to visit a Christian uh, missionary. She developed a rapport with her. She wanted to visit her. This was during Christmas Eve, the winter of Korea, which is freezing. If you ever heard of frozen, chosen, the words, I mean, it was freezing cold. She was bundled up, full-term pregnant, and she figured she could make the leg of the walk. And uh, she almost made it, but then with the cold and through... Uh, the trek, she says, the labor pains began to kick in pretty bad, and she couldn't walk forward anymore. And um, to get to the village, you have to cross a bridge. That's where the cars, you know, the jeeps and whatnot. She said she had to get shelter. She couldn't go anymore. So she went underneath the bridge to kind of break away from the elements, the wind. And um, the story goes on to, tell, to say that the next morning came. The missionary friend got out of the house and was going to run into a town over to grab some supplies. She drives over in her jeep towards the, um, the bridge. And I guess, I don't know if there was some issue with a vehicle. So she got out and she looked underneath the hood. But after a while, she began to hear a baby's cry. So she said, that's what is going on. So she goes, follows the sound, went to underneath the bridge and she saw a sound that, well, she saw a vision that broke her heart. She says in one hand, she saw the mother. The mother was lifeless, frozen. In the other hand, uh, there was a sense of joy because the baby had survived, but what made it very interesting is how that baby survived is that the mother removed all her clothes to keep her baby warm so the baby could live and she gave her life with the you know delivery of you know the child the element she lost her life so the missionary to make a long short of it the missionary uh, adopted this little child's son became her son now and as the child began to grow throughout the years he began to share with the son exactly what his biological mother has done for him. And she was, he was amazed, you know, like, wow, somebody would do that for me. 
And then up to, I believe it was his 12th birthday, the son had a request to ask of a, you know, his adopted mother. He says, my, he says, I got a request in the morning of when I turned 12, could you take me to see the grave of my mom where she's buried? He says, she was kind of taken back because he's never asked before. He said, yeah, sure, of course I will. So lo and behold, it was, it was cold that morning, freezing, kind of light snow, as far as I understand. They got in a Jeep or some vehicle and they drove right over to where the gravesite was. And the son said to him, he says, would you mind waiting in the Jeep? I kind of want to do this alone. So she says, sure. So he's all bundled up and he goes out of the Jeep and he walks all the way to the site because he points it out to him through the window. And then he sits there for maybe quite a few minutes. It seemed like an eternity for him. And he went on his knees and he began to cry. And then after a few moments, he got up off his knees and he did something that kind of shocked the mother. He began to take his hat off and his, and his uh, scarf nice wool scarf, and he puts it right on top of her grave. And then the mother's watching, kind of scratching her head, and then he goes on to take his nice thick wool coat, and he takes it off, and takes off his sweaters, and he keeps going and going, and the mom says, is he gonna take everything off? What is he doing? And sure enough, that's exactly what he did. He took every art, gloves, no shoes, everything was off right out of grave. And the story goes to say that he fell on his knees and he began to cry. And this is what he said out loud. I guess the mother heard it. He says, Mama, Mama, when you gave your life for me that day, was it this cold for you? And he said it again. Mama, Mama, when you gave your life for me that day, was it this cold for you? You see the principle in the story when it comes to cost? When you realize the cost of Jesus Christ and how much he gave for you, it pale, I mean, what we go through pales in, in, in comparison for what he's done for us. Me being up here, public speaking, nervous out of my boots leading up to this, my family will tell you, it pales, this is nothing, this is peanuts according to what my Lord has done for me. You see, it's love that pushes me up here. It's not because I'm trying to become a better person. It's because he's given me a new life. New life. What's new life? New life isn't a better version of the old one. New life is that you have new dreams, new desires, new ambitions, new passions. So you might think, am I willing to pay that? He'll give you this new life and you're never alone again and he carries you through. Walking the Christian life is a hard, hard road. I'm not gonna butter it up for you. It's hard. It's not simple. But he promises to be with you and I promise you, I promise you, we're never disappointed. What an adventure. He's able to take even our uh, struggles, our depravity, even when we still struggle to this day, and, and turn it into such a beautiful masterpiece. I've read a book called Spectacular Sins by uh, Piper, I believe, where God is so sovereign that he even takes the sins of our life, not that he approves when we do it, but when we do fail, he's able to take those broken pieces and say, now watch this. And we say, wow. It's kind of looking at one of those threaded 
designed pictures I remember in my living room tied around these little tacks, and it's a beautiful design. You flip it to the backside, it looks like it's all in knots. This part in knots is what it looks like here in this fading, passing away world. When you flip it and see the design, it's God's perspective. I could take all those knots and watch the beauty I can make on the other side. That's what he does to you. You have everything to gain and absolutely nothing to lose. Whosoever willing is, wants to come, let him come. Don't prevent them. Get over that barrier. And one thing you're going to discover is not just the relationship with God. Uh, this new life, another word, a word that we use in the Christian terms, you might hear it differently. New life, you might hear eternal life. Uh, a lot of people say eternal life and they think automatically quantity which is true. You have a life that never ends, but it's more than that. Your quality is completely different. Doesn't mean it's easy, but your passions, your desires, and dreams. You ever do things in the past, you know, coming to know Jesus, and you can even fathom doing those things anymore? That's a product of the new life. That's a product of little by, we don't just, you know, re, you know, receive Jesus, so to speak, and all of a sudden we're just this big mature person. We grow little by little, and he helps us along the way. I assure you, God is still changing my crappy diapers every day. But you know what blows me away? He does it with joy. He doesn't do it grudgingly. He said, this is my boy, this is my son. He may blow it all off, but he's still mine. So it's more than just an added precept of another uh, religion, so to speak. Something extra to believe. If I do another, you know, enough whatever, you know, I can have right standing in God. Every other worldview on the face of the earth, you're fundamentally, simply put, but fundamentally, your good works, you have to outweigh your bad. Only in the Christian faith, it's through grace and new life and be a son or daughter. It's completely different, and it's all on him, what he was willing to pay for us. The question is, are you willing to receive that forgiveness? Um, what does a new life look like? What does it look like when there's a cost to be paid? Um, I'm going to begin to land this plane now. Um, I'm going to show a, a video that kind of sums up, and I want to give a little structure on uh, what this video is. It's about a four-minute video. I'm going to let you know ahead of time, but it's one of the most powerful videos I have ever seen because it showed me a product of what this new Christian life looks like. You see it in contemporary times. It's one thing to talk about, oh yeah, Jesus is with you and he'll help you be along and he never leaves you and that's true and that's good. But I'm a visual guy. I have to see it. What does this new life look like? What does it mean having this new life? There's still a cost to be paid. What does it look like in action? And as you see this video, just look at it from the perspective that this person was able to do this because he was reminded of what Jesus had done. Maybe somebody's listening online. He says, how does that help with my pain, preacher wannabe? What are you going to do? How does this gospel help me? I'm in pain. I'm, in, I'm hurting. Well, let me set up the video. It's, uh, maybe many of you will remember this. It was worldwide television news where there was this white female police officer, and she mistakenly kicked in the wrong apartment, thinking there was a truda in her apartment. She thought it was. And uh, the lights were off. There was just a television on. And all you do is see a silhouette of an individual in there. That's all she saw. 
I listened to the testimony because I want to make sure I had this right. So I listened to it online. And she says, as she put in the door, she opened the door, she had her gear in one in her left hand, and she pulled out the gun with her right. She thought it was intruder. She worked like a double shift or something like that, so she was exhausted. This is the height during uh, when they had the riots or whatnot, you know, uh, racial riots. A lot of protesting going on. And uh, to make a long story short, she, sh she shot two shots. One of them hit him dead center. And before the paramedics got there, he died. As far as I understand, he was a Christian too. He was in the living room, it was recorded, that uh, he was just watching television in his living room, eating ice cream. And then, from his perspective, somebody kicks in the door with a gun. He had, you know, he didn't know what to do. She shot him, she was exhausted. And when she flipped the lights on, she saw it wasn't her apartment, because it was like an apartment complex, you know how they're quite similar? They looked similar, she was so tired that she didn't see the clues that, wait a minute, I was on the wrong floor all along. And, um, I believe she got sentenced 10 years, which is quite gracious, even though she had, but the, I believe the jury understood that it was a mistake. But then the little brother comes up on the stand now, and he's testifying. And now, think about it. You think you're suffering, which you are. I'm not downplaying it. But this man just lost his older brother, shot right in the chest, eating ice cream. You have crowds out front of the courthouse saying, no justice, no peace. That's all you kept here chanting. And here comes this 18-year-old, his younger brother. And that's the scene to this clip. I want you to see how he dresses us. Number one, the new life. And that, trust me, that cost him a lot for what the things were he was going to say and offer. That cost him a lot. But it paled in comparison to what his Savior has done for him. So, I'm going to end there. What I'm going to do as I step down, Andy or Jen, if you could just show the video, and I'm going to have Tom come up and do the invitation, and what he's going to do, he's going to close us out. Uh, I just want to thank you for your attention this morning, and I pray that even though many here are saved, I want us to not take for granted what we really have with Christ. You may have lost a loved one, in Christ, they're in that new world with Jesus Christ. We're all passing, but we're going to be with them again. Where, no, where nothing decays and it's permanent. So, um, yeah. If you guys can show the video, I'm going to shut up and uh, Tom will come up and close us out.